And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Last week we entered into the topic of biblical sexuality. And we began by seeing how important the matter is for both unbelievers and believers. And in doing so, we answered many lies meant to disarm us or to convince us against the truthfulness of God's word. And really disarm us as we are in warfare, spiritual warfare. In this regards, particularly in our topic, the matter of sexual immorality. You and I are in spiritual warfare against sexual immorality. Whether we ourselves are tempted of it or not, we are engaged in the battle. Now, I told you last week, I warned you that some things uh, I will warn you about for children. I don't believe there'll be anything today, um, in my judgment, uh, that may not agree with yours. And if so, I apologize, but I am not going to be exploitative of the scriptures. I'm not going to try to speak in order to just get a rise or just get your attention. I'm going to speak honestly with regards to what the scriptures say. And I do believe, as a parent of young children, we live in an age where we cannot pretend that our children are not going to hear these things very early. When we lived on a particular road up in Kapahi a few years ago, and our son was three or four, his neighbor friend was coming home from school talking about more expletive things than I will preach on today. More explicit things, that's the better word, right? And so I'm not going to try to match the world in their grotesqueness, of these issues, but I want to match scripture. Since the beginning of creation, and we see this in chapter 3, don't we? Lies have abounded. And lies serve a purpose not only to convince us of them, so as to commit our ways as opposed to the truth, but also just as an obscurity to the truth. Lies are often like weeds that grow up on a property line. <laughs> you know, you have little markers. And I've been on so many different properties on this island. And many times when I worked for this large estate here, they wanted to know where the property boundary markers were. And I just remember cutting down weeds and weeds trying to find property boundaries and lines and demarcations. And, and this is often how it is to get to the truth. You have to cut down weeds to get to the truth. Today, if I could say this, this topic has to do not with one of those wimpy weed whackers with the little string. This topic 
Today, this text today is the metal blade that goes through any guinea grass, any buffalo grass. It will destroy all the weeds if we would just understand this topic today. In fact, if you don't come back for any other preaching on this topic, you think that pastor has no business talking about that in the pulpit or whatever it may be. If you'll hear this today and you'll believe what the Word of God says about this matter, I think that God will keep you from error and all of the perversions that follow downstream from it. But because this is the matter of, I think, first importance with regards to sexual righteousness, it is also at the point where the world really starts to grind against it. I was listening to a talk, and, and he's a very provocative person in evangelical circles. His name is Doug Wilson, and he was giving a talk on sexual by design at Indiana University. And he opened his talk with sort of a philosophical uh, meta uh, idea of, of worldview, and if you worship this, this is what you're going to be. But it wasn't until he started reading Genesis 2.24, which we'll read this morning. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast, cleave, join to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It wasn't until he read that, that there was an eruption in the congregation. Not the congregation, but the audience and chants and protests started coming out. And it goes on for five minutes. You can watch it on YouTube, you can watch it. And, and the, what struck me was this is, as I said, the root of the matter. If this is true, every, everything we might call sexual immorality answers to this truth. And it's almost like those that could hear him speaking and reading the word of God understood it when they got to this text. We are in spiritual warfare, the Bible calls us, tells us. And I will tell you that sometimes it's the simple things that that warfare is going to be fought over and won or lost. I do not believe that our society is made sinful because we promote transgenderism as sexual practice or normative. Where we have failed sexually, and this is not first a cultural issue, but it is a human issue, and we live in this culture. Where we fail is at the point of marriage between man and woman, husband and wife. If we do not seek Repentance and forgiveness in this union that God has created, we will expect, and I expect, no change of direction with sexual righteousness in, in any of the immoral acts that follow downstream. Amen. None of them. They are all as far away from the center of the matter as can be conceived of, and they're moving further away. But we will not change anything by aiming at those issues first. Now that's not to say we don't speak the truth about those issues. I intend to do that. 
in the following weeks. I tend to get into those issues because people need answers from Scripture from them. But as I said, this matter today is a matter of first importance. Sexual righteousness in our society, sexual immorality, sexual autonomy, if I could say it that way, sexual autonomy is sacred in our society. What I'm going to be saying today is heresy in our society. And of course, we count noses, and that's how we decide those things. But I'm going to say the majority of the population, if they heard this sermon today, I'm sure that I would get a lot of letters that disagree, hate mail, perhaps death threats. This is the way these things work out in the world. And it is not my intention to do that. This sermon... By all sense, in all sense, I am not preaching purposely a sermon that you could call combative. That's not my intention. But these truths are combative. They're spiritual warfare. First, and the only real point I have, the main point that I have this morning is that Human beings are sexual by God's design. By God's design. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Both scripture and the historical interpretation are clear that marriage is clearly established within Genesis chapter 2. Within this text, the biblical framework for righteous sexual fulfillment is also found. Three things are clearly described here. First, in marriage, there is a leaving that takes place. A man shall leave his father and mother. The pattern begins with the man leaving father and mother. And there's been all sorts of arguments as to what this leaving means, I believe, regards his priority in life and responsibility. I don't believe this means that a married man cuts himself off all ties or associations or even the responsibility to honor his parents is cut off. And I don't also believe that it absolutely means you need to move a certain measure of distance away from your parents. I don't think there's any problem with moving a distance from your parents. I don't believe that's what is required here. Leaving regards essentially priority and primary responsibility. So when you're leaving your parents, you are going into a relationship that demands your main priority is that person. Your main responsibilities lie within the relationship that you are entering into not the one you are leaving. Because it says, hold fast. You leave and you hold fast. You leave and you cleave, right? That's the way that we used to say it, very clearly summarized. The idea there is it's a bond. It, there's an adhering to. There's a union. 
there's an entering into a union that is a first and lasting importance for both here the man and the woman. This is very simple, isn't it? Marriage from the beginning is defined as a man and woman entering into a union that even is a forsaking of your parents in the sense of responsibility, priority, perhaps identity, although there is still a connection with identity with parents. But these two bind themselves together in a sacred, lifelong, and intimate relationship. And we see that next. They shall become one flesh. There is a transcendent value to this relationship. You were not one flesh with your parents. You see? You are entering into a union where there is a measure of intimacy that is reserved for husband and wife. Hold fast, and they shall become one flesh. And this regards the intimate nature of the engagement. And this is the most intimate of fellow of physical unions that scripture describes consummated by husband and wife for life that this relates to sexual relationship or intimacy of the husband and wife is clear from what we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 6:16 6, the apostle says there or do you not know That he who is joined, that word joined comes there from Genesis 2.24, to a prostitute, one who sells herself for sexual intimacy, becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Every act of sexual intimacy outside of the marital union of man and woman is sexual immorality, therefore is what the apostle is saying. And here's the point. And in fact, if you'll get that point, everything, as I said, flows downstream from it. Every act of sexual intimacy outside of the marital union of man and woman is sexual immorality. Every act of sexual immorality counterfeits and perverts God's good design for marriage and human sexuality. Here is the argument from the beginning. It's, based, it's very simple, isn't it? Leaving father and mother, you bind yourself to your spouse. Lifelong commitment, priority, responsibility, intimacy, sexual intimacy is found within that marital bounds, binding on both people, and enjoyed within those, that singular category is where Biblical sexuality, biblical righteousness in regards to sexuality is defined very simply. Very simply. Which makes every act of sexual intimacy outside of the marital bonds of man and woman immoral. Not just unethical. Not just unethical in the sense that this might be bad for us as an arrangement but immoral. God made us this way from the beginning to relate this way only to our spouse, male or female. 
And these are fighting words in our society. You better believe that this is the basis for the fight. When Bertrand Russell talked about how we need to escape from God, the, the theology that shaped the West, he said every single wall needs to be broken down. You know what one of the first walls was? Monogamous marriage. That was one of the first walls. That needs to be broken down to change the shape of what we know about human culture and society. He was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant mathematician, and he was an atheist. That was a long time ago, and he was absolutely right. You break this down, the floodgates open, and the whole course of human identity can be changed from there. Some may object, though, just to going to Genesis 2.24 with the famous objection is, Oh, that's the Old Testament. You could object there. Some may say, oh, that's the Old Testament. I believe in the New Testament. I believe in Jesus, not that old stuff. Some may even say, oh, well, the Old Testament is myth, or this, this Genesis account is merely a myth, and so we don't take myths and, and draw from them morals. We might draw from them some principles that we may or may not accept, but we don't draw from them morals that, define truth and reality for us. And that's what makes Jesus' words so profound, isn't it? And in fact, the way Jesus speaks about the whole Old Testament in John chapter 10 is that the scriptures cannot be broken. You see, one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is the word of God is because the risen Son of God established the truthfulness of all scripture. Moses said, David said, the scriptures cannot be broken. And this text right here, which is of the most formative value and of importance for human identity and sexuality, as we read, Jesus references this as where the truth for men and women and the boundaries of human sexuality are found. Have you not read Where do you read that? Genesis 2.24. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, he said, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now Jesus is adding authority. He's adding more. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And the implication of Jesus' final words are staggering in light of what our society is teaching us about sexuality, morals, and ethics in regards to sexual intimacy. Jesus is saying that when God weighs in on what should be or should not be joined together, let no man contrive to contradict him and try to separate what he has joined together. Of course, within the context, this regards divorce, which will be a topic of this study. 
But Jesus confirms that God's design for marriage and human sexuality in Genesis, even after the fall. Notice, this is a few years after Adam and Eve sinned, correct? Jesus says Genesis 2 still stands. In fact, the truth of human sexuality is based on it, he says. Who created us? is what Jesus is saying. He who created you defines the parameters of what is good and what is evil. And this is where the the idea of worldview and the philosophy and the understanding that when we are worshiping other things besides the creator, we start to pervert, pervert the creation and God's intent in it. One of the issues that we'll talk about as we go on from here is the idea and the lie that is so often put forward, I just want to do what feels natural to me. There are several ways the scriptures speak about nature. One of them, fundamentally, is what the creator says about our nature. That's what we're learning here. What feels naturally to us is often a lie and often is a result of a sinful nature that we all have. It is no excuse or defense for doing whatever we want to do. It is no assertion that it's good if we act on whatever we want to do. There's a man this week, July 4th, that shot and murdered six people, a coward from a rooftop. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do that. And of course, we see the immediate result of that, and we say, well, that's wrong. We don't always see the immediate result of sexual immorality. We don't always see it. And yet it's equally sinful. God condemns both from the beginning. Now, as I argued, as I said, I'm not trying to be militant with regards to these things. And because of that, I want us to step back from the militant mindset and give thanks to God. You see, what's often said is that, well, this is exclusionary. That this is exclusionary. It's not inclusive, right? Isn't that one of the great arguments against this truth? And yet, let me me encourage you. Let me put you at ease. God doesn't exclude anybody from marriage in accordance with this creation account. He doesn't say to anybody, you are not allowed to marry someone of the opposite sex. In fact, it's a good thing. We call this a bond of common grace that God gives to sinners and Christians who are also sinners by grace we're saved alike. This is not merely for the Christian church. This is for the whole world to enjoy. Man and woman, no one is excluded from this 
union, husband and wife. And in light of that, I want to bring four things to light. So be brief. Four positive assertions about sexuality in, within the bonds of marriage, within the sacred union of marriage. Here's what I don't want. What often happens within the Christian church on these matters, especially when we're fighting a culture war or we're fighting for truth, which we need to maintain a, a defense of the truth, we need to maintain these things because a lot is at stake, as I argued last week. Much is at stake. But we need to do it in light of what is positive about this thing. So that we don't all start acting like it never happens. Or that it's evil when it happens. You see, the church has fallen into that before. That even within the bonds of marriage, sexual activity, intimacy, is sort of a expletive that we never talk about. Explicit thing we never speak about. Within the scriptures, that's not how it is. Of course, it's not provocative the way that the world uses it. It's not eroticized. The first positive assertion about sexual righteousness within the bonds of marriage is that it's for the purpose of filling the earth. God made man and woman in his image. There is a fact, there is a sense where both man and woman were created to fulfill the image, to put forth the image of God. One of the ways we do that is through childbearing, through raising children, through filling the earth. Genesis 1 and 2 is about this purpose. And God blessed them, Genesis 1.28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is a blessing placed on mankind with a mandate of filling and subduing the earth. And he enabled us to enjoy that blessing within the union of husband and wife. A binding relationship. That enables the raising of children, the filling of the earth with order and with joy. Not only does God establish the home, husband and wife raising children, he does so after the fall in relationship to his grace and promise and covenant. Genesis 3.15, this first promise we see after Adam and Eve's sin, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring we know from scripture is the means of God gaining victory over sin. Marriage and, be, and through marriage the fulfillment of this Filling the earth mandate, the, 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 the mandate to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, have children. Through that comes the covenant of grace. Adam or Abraham has promised that he's going to be a father of multitudes. If you can number the stars in heaven, you know how many children he will have. And children are seen in that covenant as a great blessing by which God will fulfill his promises. And that's no more clearly seen than when Jesus comes into the world. And you say, well, Jesus comes in, into the world through a virgin birth. Yes, but 
Also, there is a connection through genealogy. Matthew 1.1, who is Jesus the son of Abraham and David? Jesus is the son of promise. And so Paul can say women will be saved through childbearing, not because there's something meritorious in it that earns you heaven, but this is the way that God will bring salvation into the world is through the seed of the woman. No one will enter heaven who has not been conceived on earth. And that's a great joy. It's also how we minister. We recently had a, a boy in our house whose parents are both addicts. Man, I fell in love with that boy quickly. And so Christians can see not just our own children, but children in this world as part of the joy of seeing marital unions increase the opportunity for salvation in the lives of these children. There is no greater blessing than eternal life. And only those who are conceived will enjoy it. And God has ordained that that comes through the marital union, through sexual relationships within marriage. Second, related to the first, of course, and this is all related, sexual relationships within marriage are meant for our sanctification. Sanctification means the putting away of sin and being more like the Lord Jesus Christ, obedient to God in righteousness. You say, what? I've never thought of it that way. But in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, we read, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And some of you might be upset with that, but listen, there's equality here. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a little time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This was written expressly for the purpose of sexual righteousness among man and woman in the home. And many have scoffed at the simplicity of this text. In our day, usually the argument is that a man must never take advantage of his wife in this way. But the issue at hand protects, in fact, both husband and wife. It sets their relationship in a place that it ought to be, namely, devotion towards one another. This is for the sake of you seeing that your spouse enjoys the bond of marriage with you. 
in a sense, we should see this as married couples, and we should not think of self. We should think of our spouse. Am I neglecting my spouse? Am I neglecting this good purpose for marriage? And you, should, you can say in your mind, well, there's so many extenuating circumstances. Yes, yes, there are extenuating circumstances. But don't neglect this. Don't lie to yourself and make them up as you go. This is why we can't just sweep sexual intimacy under the rug. This is for the sake of your loved one, your husband, your wife, that you not neglect their right to you. Let me tell you, everyone who's not married and who wants to enter into this union, to becoming one means that you find your identity in your wife, in your husband. You are giving yourself to them as belonging to them for as long as you both shall live. And it is a joy. It is a joy to be able to give yourself to one who loves you and you alone in that way. The world is so uncertain about themselves. We're so enamored with ourselves. We don't know if we're acceptable. And with your spouse, you will be. You must be accepted by them. Not on the basis of all the extraneous things that we can say I'm acceptable or not. Not your inadequacies, but on the bonds of your union between your spouse and yourself and before God. You are loved. You must be loved. And you must come back to that love as a means of sanctification, the apostle says. You must not put it off for the sake of your spouse. God has given sexual intimacy for a consumatory act as an ongoing bond of healthy of a healthy marriage. You see, so often this is put in the regards of my husband's just going to take advantage of me. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there is a drive that on one side is a lot stronger than the other, generally speaking. Let's just be honest with ourselves. I'm not going to speak grotesquely here. But let me tell you something. That very drive as a wife should induce you that your husband doesn't find that in any other person but you. He's not, hey, he's not going to be tempted by anybody because I'm going to be his lover. And that's good. That's good. And men, of course, the scriptures tell us that we live with our wives with understanding. This is not given so that we can domineer in any way. There's an equality of importance here. But it's there in scripture, and it's for our good. It's for 
our sanctification. In relationship to that third, sex is for the enjoyment of the marital union. So I just mentioned, this is a physical act that bonds a husband and wife for life. The two shall become one flesh, and as such it ought not to be neglected for long. Do not deprive one another, he says, except for a limited time. But then come together again, he says. There may be many things that prohibit our sexual intimacy as husband and wife. But God's word is clear that we should not let those things, if we are at all able, remain too long. It's good for both of you. And related to this, fourth, sex is an expression of marital love and pleasure. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Let your fountain, that's the place that you draw enjoyment, I believe, be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Husbands, don't neglect the loveliness of your wife. Don't, don't let this world dull you to her. Don't let her own failings, don't let your failings dull you to her. Be enamored by her. Woo her. Delight in her. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Listen to what the scriptures say. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Be single-minded towards her. You see, this is a great gift that God has given man and wife, husband and wife, man and woman. And you may have never heard a sermon like this. I had never heard a sermon like this growing up. But the church needs to preach what God's word says on these matters. You know, we think what's happening out there is explicit. Have you read the scriptures? The scriptures is not for kindergartners as grown-ups. We are to be mature. We're to grow up a little bit. Read what the word of God has to say. Delight ourselves in its truth. You know what? If we delight ourselves in the right pattern, we're going to be a lot less tempted to fall after the lies and the pattern of sin that surrounds us. You know, there's a whole book given to this topic, the Song of Solomon. I've been reading it a lot lately. Sometimes I blush as I read it. You know, you get through all of the ancient metaphorical language and you know something is going on here that's deeply intimate between this man and his wife. And one scholar said this so well. He said, here, this is written by Solomon, a man with a thousand wives, which is utterly reprehensible. 
and we'll talk about polygamy. And in this scripture, all that matters is her, his wife. He becomes simple with her. A great man, he becomes a farmer with her. He's so taken in by who she is. Wives, your husbands can be taken in by who you are because you are only for him. Husbands, your wives can be taken in by who you are because she is bonded to you for as long as you both shall live. Love one another. Express that love in the way that God has given you not just the right, but I would say the obligation to enjoy one another in this way. For as long as you both shall live. Let's rejoice in this gift, in the way that God has intended us to enjoy it. Because when we rejoice in righteousness, sin and temptation, lies will be cut down and God will be glorified in our homes.